Welcome to the Time Traveling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who right from the very beginning. I'm Patty. And I'm Trisha. This week we join the Doctor and Romana as they continue their search for the fifth piece of the key to time in the power of Krull. As usual, we'll be discussing the Doctor, the companions and the villains and give your thoughts on the story as a whole. We'd also love to hear your thoughts on this story. So in order to join the discussion, you can check us out at Time Team, that's T-I-M-E-T-E-A-M-P, on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at timetravelingteam at teamproductions.com. But I suppose, as always, I shall lead us off with a bit of a story recap. Please do. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Part 1. On one of the swamp moons of Delta Magna, Controller Thawne returns to his methane refinery from a visit to the main planet. He goes to the control room and meets his chief technical staff of Fenner, Harg and Dugin and catches up on what he has missed. Dugin, who is at the radar control station, says that he has tracked another vehicle arriving in tandem with Thawne's ship, much to the surprise of everyone. Tawn informs him that a subversive movement known as the Sons of Earth has been reportedly attempting to arm the local populace of the Swamp Moons, which are derogatorily referred to as Swampies. Harg is shocked by this, calling the natives savages. Thawne says that the population of Delta Magna have been growing increasingly sympathetic to them, as they were the original inhabitants of Delta Magna, but were sent to the outlying moons once the colonists arrived. Dugin expresses surprise as well, saying that the Sons of Earth are pacifists by nature. Venner says that he heard a report that a ship belonging to Rome Dutt, a notorious gunrunner, has been lost track of, and Dugin suggests that maybe that was the ship that he picked up on the radar. Thawne takes a rifle and tells Fenner to follow him. Meanwhile, the TARDIS lands out in the swamps, and the Doctor and Romana emerge to take a look around. Due to the marshy terrain, K9 is forced to stay in the TARDIS whilst they explore. The Doctor takes a gravity reading and uses his hat and states that his belief that they are on the third moon of Delta Magna. He tells Romana to take a reading for the next segment of the key to time, but the reading is not clear, and so she makes for higher ground. The Doctor uses this time to make a flute from some nearby reeds to practice his back. Unbeknownst to him, Romana is abducted by a pair of green-skinned humanoids while she is trying to get a reading. In the scuffle, she drops the locator. The Doctor spots a hovercraft approaching, carrying Thawne and Fenner, and he goes to look for Romana. Fenner takes aim at him and fires, and the Doctor falls to the ground. Nearby, Romana is loaded into a canoe, being steered by a man wearing similar clothes to the Doctor. One of the Greenskins, whose name is Varlick, says that maybe someone from the refinery is out hunting, and the man says that they should leave. Thorn and Fenner go to examine the doctor's body, and Fenner rejoices in having killing Rome Dutt. Thorn says that it isn't Dutt, and says that he shot the wrong person. However, the doctor stands up and shows him that the bullet passed through his hat. They demand to know who he is, but he says that he is looking for Romana. Thorn says that the natives must have got her, and the doctor asks how to contact them, but Thorn demands that he go with them back to the refinery, leading him away at gunpoint. Meanwhile, the group of natives and the man, who is actually Rome Dutt, exit the canoes and begin to unload them. Roman is taken to a nearby fallen tree and tied to it where she is questioned by Dutt. He asks if she is from the refinery and she says that she doesn't know what he's talking about. He asks how many people are with her and she replies that it is just the doctor, who is probably out looking for her. He then asks her what she is doing in the swamp and threatens her when she keeps insisting that he wouldn't understand. Back at the refinery, the doctor and the others arrive just as the waters around her grow turbulent due to an approaching storm. The doctor is thrown roughly inside by Thawne and questioned by him and Fenner. He says that he was looking for Romana, but they believe that he is up to something else, as they tell him that the area around the finery is prohibited. The doctor asks why a simple methane refinery is being treated as a classified project, but they seemed amazed by this, as they tell him it is the first of its kind. Thawne starts to quiz the doctor on the various machines in the refinery, to see how much he knows about them. The doctor suggests ways to improve the efficiency of the refinery, which Fenner says is brilliant. The doctor then says that he needs to go to find Romana, but they tell him the way through the swamps is dangerous and he will most likely be killed by the natives. Dugin then announces over the intercom that an orbit shot is incoming and Thorne leads the doctor and the others to the control room. Out in the swamps, Dot and the others arrive at the native village and unload their cargo of guns. 
The village chief, Ranquin, thanks Dutt for his aid in their fight against the refinery. Dutt goes to leave, but first asks for a signature on the docket to prove that it was he that delivered the weapons. Rankin has one of his underlings, Scart, sign it, and then asks about Romana. Dutt says that he got nothing from her, and Scart suggests offering her as a sacrifice to their god, Kroll, for his blessing in their upcoming attack on the refinery. At the refinery, Tawn explains to the doctor that the orbit shot is when they shoot the compressed methane into orbit around Delta Magna. Fenner explains that it reduces the cost of using freighters to carry the cargo. Tawn says that the refinery is fully automated, but requires a skeleton staff to make sure everything runs smoothly. The doctor notices that one of the crew is a native, but Tawn says that he is merely a menial servant named Mensch. Dugin and Fenner then argue about the impact of the refineries on the lives of the, and homes of the natives. The doctor asks about the deaths of some of the other staff members and says that they could have been accidents as they were out in the swamps, but Tawn insists that the natives are responsible. He then goes to join the others at the observation station, and the doctor slips away unnoticed. He makes his way back to the pump room that he first arrived in, but finds that the exit sealed. He starts to unlock it, but hears someone approaching, and in a few moments later, Tawn and Mensch appear. They suddenly hear voices in the distance, and Mensch explains that it is the other natives calling upon Kroll for a sacrifice. The doctor asks what Kroll is, and Tawn says that it is a squid that the natives worship as a god, after the colonists gave it to them as part of a trade for their land centuries ago. The doctor voices his concern that Romana might be the one being sacrificed, but Tawn refuses to let him leave. He says that if the natives are calling for a sacrifice, that that means they intend to attack, and theorizes that Dutt has delivered guns to them. He says that he and the others will now be able to claim self-defense when he orders the refineries to fence mortars to destroy the village. Tawn orders the doctor to follow him back to the control room, whilst telling Mench to stay behind. However, a few moments later, the doctor sneaks back, avoiding Mench who has taken a torch and gone to the outer walkway. He exits the refinery and heads towards the swamp after taking one of the canoes. He spots a native using a torch to signal the refinery and follows after him as he makes his way through the swamp. Meanwhile, the natives lead Romana to the sacrificial pit where Kroll resides. When nothing appears, she says the whole thing is a superstitious nonsense, but then a pair of claws emerge from the darkness, causing her to scream. Part 2 The doctor appears, having been drawn to Romana's screams, and finding a rear entrance to the pit, he attacks the figure in the front of Romana, revealing it to be Scart in a costume. The doctor gloats as he unties her, saying that he probably looked more convincing from the front, but Romana tells him not to be smug. The doctor says that based on what Tawn told him, the actual Kroll must be dead for centuries. Suddenly Romana spots Scart getting back to his feet and tells the doctor to look out as he throws a knife at them. The knife misses and, the, and Scart runs away. Meanwhile, at the refinery, Dugin calls Thawn and tells him that something strange is showing up on the scanners. He says that a two-square-mile area of the swamp bed has moved. Tawn says that there could be a gas build-up and tells Dugin to keep an eye on it. In the village, Varlick and Rankwin tell Dutt that Mench has signalled that Tawn and the others will launch an attack at dawn. Dutt is shocked by this and urges Rankwin and his, to have his people scattered to avoid being slaughtered. Varlick says that they will be able to fight back with the guns, but Dutt again urges them to go into hiding. Thinking that Dutt believes them to be ignorant savages, Varlick says they know how to use the weapons and will prepare ambushes for Thawne's forces. Dutt says that he will not help in the fighting, but Varlick says they need every gun available to help fight off the invaders. In the pit, Romana reveals that she lost the tracer, but the doctor shows it to her, saying that he picked it up when he went looking for her. She then says that they should leave before more natives arrive, but the doctor says that they will be too preoccupied with preparing for the coming attack. Romana asks about the refinery, and the doctor tells her of what he has learned about the history of the colonists and the natives. He also tells her about the amount of methane that the refinery is producing, and they both marvel at how such a small moon can produce so much. Romana then tells him about the presence of Dutt, and the doctor wonders how Thawne knew that Dutt would be bringing guns to the natives, and who was paying him for them. Romana says they need to escape, and the doctor leads through a nearby underground tunnel. 
Back at the refinery, Dugin shows Thawne the increasing movement of the swamp bed, and Thawne orders a probe to be sent out to investigate. Fenner then appears and says that the doctor is gone. Thawne then begins to wonder if the doctor is somehow responsible for the swamp bed activity, but Dugin says that it would take more than one person to cause such a massive upheaval. Fenner reminds him of the doctor saying that he was looking for Romana, and the trio didn't wonder how many people are with the doctor and how long they have been in the area. Thawne says the doctor must be trying to sabotage the refinery as in a league with the Sons of Earth. He says that he will go with Mensch and try and track him down and kill him. Meanwhile, the Doctor and Romana emerge from the tunnel and the Doctor opens a tome that he found while they were escaping. He says that it appears to be a history of the natives and then finds an entry on Kroll. It says that Kroll appears every few centuries from hibernation to judge the people, destroying them if they are unworthy. The Doctor says that judging by the information, Kroll must be enormous and is due for another appearance soon. Elsewhere, Dutton and the natives make their way through the swamp. At the same time, Scart tells Rankin about what happened in the pit, and Rankin says that they must make it look like the sacrifice was successful so the others don't lose hope. The two groups then take cover and they see Thawne and Mench arrive at a hovercraft. Mench gets out to investigate an abandoned canoe and one of the natives fires at him but the weapon explodes in his face. Suddenly, an enormous tentacle emerges from the water and drags Mench under. Dutch uses the confusion to break cover and signal to Thawne but he is ignored as Kroll rises from the swamp. Rankin begs Kroll to spare his people and the giant squid goes back under the water as Thawne speeds away. Scart then says that they need to find Dutt, who fled when Thawne went away. Back at the refinery, Thawne tells the others about what happened and Fenner is shocked at the idea of the natives being armed. He says the Doctor must be in league with the natives and Dutt, who delivered the weapons to them on behalf of the Sons of Earth. Hark says that they should notify the authorities on Delta Magna, but Thawne says that they are too soft and that they need to deal with the natives his way. Fenner expresses discomfort at the idea of genocide, but Thawne says it is the only way. He first says that they need to deal with Kroll. They use a scanner to look for it, but they seem to be defective, so they send for Dugin. He says the scanners are still operating, but something is blocking them. He does a sonar sweep of the area, and it shows that Kroll is resting on the scanner field, blocking them with his tentacles. Thawne says that they should drop depth charges to kill it, but Fenner says that it is too big and that they may only provoke it. He suggests poisoning the water on the refinery, but Thawne refuses to listen and goes to the armory. Back in the swamp, the Doctor and Romana discuss what they read in the book. Romana suggests that Kroll is what producing the methane and is a byproduct of his hibernation feeding, and the doctor says that the work being done in the refinery is what woke him up. Suddenly, Romana points out that they are sorted by Rankin and the other natives, who are carrying a beaten dot. Rankin tells Varlet to take them back to the village, where the manner of their sacrifice will be decided by Kroll. En route to the village, Dot asks Varlet to let him go, but Varlet calls him a traitor, saying that he brought them defective weapons. Dot protests his innocence, but the doctor says that he knows a rogue when he sees one. Rankin and the others arrive and say that their fate has been chosen. Romana says that Kroll is a myth, but they tell her that they saw him during the attack, which shocks the two Time Lords. Back at the refinery, Harg is checking the intake pipes in the pump room when one of them bursts open and one of Kroll's tentacles appears. His screams alert Fenner and Dugin, who rush to the room and see Harg being dragged into the pipe screaming. Part 3. Dugin rushes to turn off the flow valves as Thorn arrives in and asks what's going on. Fenner tells him and says that they should uh, abandon the refinery. Thawne refuses, but Dugin urges him to see sense, saying that Kroll's potential for destruction is unfathomable. Thawne again says that they are not abandoning the refinery, and tells him to divert the flow of methane until they have managed to repair the primary line and kill Kroll. In the village, the Doctor, Romana and Dutt are strapped to a pallet with vines. Dutt asks Varlik what is going on, and he replies that Rankin has decreed that they suffer the most painful execution. However, his explanation is interrupted by the Doctor, who keeps commenting on the architecture of the pit, asking why there is a skylight in the ceiling. Scarf replies that when the sun shines on the vines, it dries them out and causes them to shorten, 
thus stretching out the limbs of the doctor and the others like a rudimentary torture rack. Rankin then arrives and says prayers for the sacrificial ceremony. He orders the natives to leave so that they will not have to watch the suffering of their victims. Before he goes, the doctor asks him about the secret of the crone's power, and Rankin demands to know how he heard about it. The doctor mentions the tome he found, and Rankin says that Kroll came into contact with a relic that allowed him to see into the future, showing him how humanity would decimate Delta Magna. He then leaves, and the doctor reveals that he was trying to hypnotize Rankin, but to no avail. He then asks Dot who hired him to give the weapons to the natives, and he tells the doctor that it was Thawne. He says that Thawne planned to use the native uprising as an excuse to wipe them out and implicate the sons of Earth in the uprising. Romana then asks why they call themselves that, and the doctor asks this is a good question, as none of the group could possibly have seen Earth in their lifetime. Back at the refinery, Dugin tells Thawne that via his calculations, Kroll's body is over 140 feet high and is over a mile long from tentacle tip to tentacle tip. Fennert then returns and says that the pump chamber has been cleaned up and Taunt tells him to get to work on repairing the primary intake line. He says that they have 35 death charges available, but they would need to hit Kroll at the right spot to kill him. Fenner and Hem then argue as the best way to deliver the charges, but Dugin interrupts them, saying that a major storm is incoming. Back in the village, Varlik confronts Ranquin, saying that the Doctor and Romana should not be sacrificed as they have nothing to do with the refinery. Ranquin says that they are human and will crawl on their side. They can punish any and all who attempt to stop them, even their own kind. The storm reaches the village and the Doctor begins to shriek in a series of high-pitched whines. Suddenly the glass in the skylight shatters and the rain starts to fall onto them and onto the vines holding them. The Doctor then urges the others to pull on against the vines, which have started to loosen due to the moisture. The Doctor gets loose and cuts the other two free. He then says that they need to leave as the storm is starting to ease off and they need to be far away when the natives come back to check on them. This proves to be true when a few minutes later, Rankin, Scart and Varlick return to find them gone. Rankin says that he must have had help and accuses Varlick, who says that he has nothing to do with it. Rankin then sends Scart to track them down. Meanwhile, in the refinery, Thorn and the others try to track Kroll, who has moved away during the storm, but are unable to locate him. Fenner checks the trajectory based on his last known location and says that it looks like he is going towards the village. Thorn laughs at what is about to happen, and Fenner says that while he doesn't like the natives, he wouldn't wish the misfortune on them. Thorn says that he doesn't hate them either, but he doesn't want his project stopped over the concern for the fate of the primitive savages. Back in the swamp, the Doctor Romana and Dutch continue their escape, trying to avoid the natives. Suddenly the Doctor tells him to stop and keep still, but Dutt keeps on walking and is seized by a tentacle and dragged away. The Doctor says that Kroll hunts by his surface vibrations. When the coast is clear, he leads Romana to a nearby canoe just as a group of natives appear and give chase. They row out into the swamp, but the Doctor tells Romana to keep still as Kroll emerges. The natives flee, but Kroll manages to grab one of them and drags him screaming into the water. Part 4 The Doctor and Romana watch as Kroll goes back into the water, and once the coast is clear, they move off again, making sure to be careful of their movements. Back in the refinery, Thorn orders Dugin to train the aerial receptors for the next orbital shot to go over the village, which Kroll is currently attacking. Thorn reveals that he intends to hit Kroll with the orbital shot and kill both it and the natives in one go. Dugin and Fenner are disgusted by this, with the latter adding that due to the thin atmosphere on the moon, they could all die of asphyxiation caused by the ensuing fireball. Thorn ignores them and starts to count down for the orbital shot. At that moment, the Dr. Romana appear and watches Dugin please for the natives to be spared. Thorne berates him, saying that he sounds just like one of the sons of Earth, and pulls a gun at him. Dugin rushes at him, but Thorne knocks him out, and then turns his attention on Fenner, who reluctantly takes over the countdown of the orbital shot. The Doctor says they need to stop the shot, and make their way to the rocket silo. Once there, the Doctor says that they should say their goodbyes now, when Romana says that it could be dangerous. She nearly falls for his trick to let him go alone, but she follows after him as the rocket's engines begin to smoke. 
Romana tells him it was too late, but the doctor tells her to get out. Up in the control room, Dugin regains consciousness and attempts to stop the countdown, but Thawne says that he will kill him if he doesn't stop. Dugin ignores him and attempts to hit the abort button, but Thawne shoots him. Fenner calls him a murderer, but Thawne focuses on the countdown. However, in the rocket silo, the doctor smashes a control box with a hammer, which stops the launch. An angry Thawne says that he will go and investigate it, but Fenner says that he intends to report him for Dugin's murder. Thawne angrily says that Dugin was a spy for the Sons of Earth, but Fenner says that he has no proof, pointing out Dugin's opposition to Thawne wasn't part of some conspiracy. Thawne storms off, saying that he will check on the rocket in case they have a chance to kill Kroll again, who is now resubmerged into the swamp. Back at the village, Varlik, Skart and Rankin gather all the survivors and wonder why Kroll attacked them. Rankin says that Kroll is punishing them for letting the Doctor and the others escape, and says that they must be killed to appease God, their god. Skart says that they went to the refinery, and Rankin orders the rest of the tribe to head there. In the rocket silo, the Doctor wakes up after having passed out, which Romana says was due to oxygen deprivation. The Doctor says they need to leave before they are found, but Thawne catches them at the entrance. The Doctor tries to bluff their way out of things, but Thawne leads them back at gunpoint to the control room. At that moment, the natives arrive in the refinery and make their way through the pump room. Rankin vows to have Kroll destroyed the refinery once they have found the Doctor and Romana, but Varlik asks why Kroll would do his bidding after he attacked the village. Rankin reiterates that Kroll was angry over the failed sacrifice, but once they have appeased him, all will be well again. In the command room, Thawne accuses the Doctor and Romana of interfering with the rocket, but he's interrupted by Fenner, who says that Kroll is approaching the refinery. He says they need to go to the shuttle and try to escape, but Thawne ignores him as he angrily tells the Doctor to stop making glib remarks. Suddenly he's impaled by a spear as the natives enter the control room and begin to arm themselves with the refinery's weapons. Rankin blames the attack on the village on the Doctor and Romana, but the Doctor replies that Kroll doesn't distinguish between any of them, seeing that they are all prey to him. Kroll then begins to attack the refinery. Rankin says that they will all die, and the Doctor turns to look for Romana to discuss a plan, but she's gone to take a look out of one of the observation windows. The Doctor tells her to come back, but she says that Kroll doesn't know that they are there. However, one of his tentacles smashes through the observation window, and the Doctor leads Romana back to the safety of the control room, which they seal off. He then tells Fenner to activate the refinery centrifuge, saying that the vibrations will confuse Kroll and drive it away. It works, and Fenner activates all the refinery's machinery, as well as its warning sirens, in order to keep confusing Kroll. The Doctor then takes the locator rod from Romana, saying that he has a theory about the source of Kroll's power. Believing the halting of the attack to be an answer to his prayers, Rankin makes his way to the pump room to try and speak to Kroll. However, one of the tentacles comes back out through the burst pipe and pulls Rankin into it, much like it did Harg earlier. Meanwhile, the Doctor goes out to the refinery platform and approaches Kroll with the locator. As he approaches, one of the tentacles lashes out and causes him to drop the locator. He goes to pick it up, but another tentacle wraps around him and attempts to pull him into Kroll's mouth. The Doctor desperately tries to get the locator and after one final attempt manages to get it. He then touches it against the giant squid, who disappears in a blinding flash of light, leaving only the segment of the key to time behind. The Doctor returns to the control room and Romana congratulates him. However, Fenner tells him that the orbital shot is about to begin its normally scheduled blast-off, but the computer still thinks that Kroll is blocking the launch bay doors and so won't open them. He also says that the master override isn't working and that they have less than a minute before the entire refinery explodes. The Doctor gives the segment to Romana and then pulls open the wiring of the control panel. He pulls two cables out and tells everyone to get back whilst he connects them. He touches them just as the countdown reaches zero and the launch is aborted. Fenner says that without Kroll to produce the methane, the refinery will be useless. The Doctor says it is time for him and Romana to leave, but he tells Fenner that someone from Delta Magna will come to collect him at some point and suggests that he get to know the natives in the interim. 
As he and Romana make their way back to the TARDIS, she asks him how he knew that Crow was connected to the segment. He says that the symbol of power mentioned in the book was the segment, and that Crow swallowed it. As they approach the TARDIS, they notice a group of large squids in the water, which the Doctor says are the remnants of Crow's original form now regenerating themselves to their normal size. They enter the TARDIS and take off. End of the story. Thank you for the summary, Paddington. You are very welcome. So now that we've dealt with my second most feared type of creature in the entire world, I'm going to hide while Trish takes us through the trivia spot. It's the tentacles, isn't it? They remind you too much of the other no, 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 it's it's not. It's it's their overall um, contortionist nature into the, how they can like essentially get into anything mm. and therefore out of anything. Also, their intelligence is scary. Coupled with that whole, I can get in and out of these little small areas, and it's like, ugh. yeah, no, it's it's scary, it's scary as hell. Conversation another time. I'm curious your thoughts on the giant squid from Daughter of the Deep. Conversation from a different time, though. That's disco squid, isn't it? Yeah. Conversation for a different time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do trivia for this time round. Um, yes. So trivia for the power of crawl. So the air date is the 23rd of December 1978, the 13th of January 1979. Our writer is the illustrious Bob Holmes. This is story 14 of 18-ish for Bob. His previous stories were, deep breath, (gasps) The Crotons, The Space Pirates, Spearhead from Space, Terror of the Autons, Carnival Monsters, The Time Warrior, The Ark in Space, Pyramids of Mars, The Brain of Morbius, The Deadly Assassin, The Talents of Wang Chiang, Sunmakers and the Ryboss operation. I will say Bob regarded this as his least favorite script due to the restrictions that were put on him by Graham Williams. Basically being it had to be part of the overall story arc of the kids time. It had to feature the biggest monster in the show and he had to tone down his humor. Keep those in mind <laughs> as we go through. Um, we'll see Bob's work again in the caves of Androsony, the two doctors, the mysterious planet and the ultimate foe. I, I can just imagine Bob going, why don't you just spit directly into my face? <laughs> <laughs> the director of the story is Norman Stewart. This is story two of two for Norman. We previously saw his work in Underworld. So the power of Kroll was originally meant to be the fourth story of the season, with the androids of Tara being the fifth, but they ended up being swapped around. The working titles included Moon of Death. Don't get what that mm. has to do with anything. Um, Horror of the Swamp. And The Shield of Time. They all suck. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Horror of the Swamp, Horror. maybe, but like... But mm. it's very it's very on the nose. Very yeah. on the nose. Um, The Shield of Time, um, which is the final working title, that was part of... There was this idea that all of the stories in season 16 would be titled The Something of Time. Mm-hmm. Um, with the la- with next week's story, The Armageddon Vector, being named The Key to Time. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously they decided not to do that and so the shield of time was dropped thank god um, the story f- features a guest appearance by Philip Maddock who we'll talk a little bit about more later on mm-hmm. he had been invited to play Thrawn originally who I am going to keep accidentally calling Thrawn I, I, I was training myself all day not to say Thrawn I was like no it's Thrawn <laughs> yes Thrawn um, but then 
the invitation to play the role got withdrawn <laughs> when Neil McCarthy accepted that role. So it's like, hey, we have this role you might be good for. He's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Oh, no, wait, sorry, dude. We actually gave it to somebody else. Um, And then a gentleman named Alan Browning was given the role of Fenner. But when he fell ill at the start of production, Philip came in to play that role. And he wasn't particularly happy that he was cast in such a minor role and he never appeared on the show again afterwards. Um, I can kind of understand why, like, yeah. you're brought in for, like, the big role of Thawne and then they're like, yeah, no, we actually gave it to somebody else. And I was like, hey, we're in a bind. You know how you said you'd love to be in this episode? Will you be in this episode but playing someone else? Yeah, second choice, last choice, thanks. Um, No, this isn't anything to do with the character. But that definitely explains why, for me, there isn't that, you know, trademark sparkle that Philip usually mm. brings to his performances. Yeah. I'm sure we'll talk about that more when we talk about Fenner and Thawne later on. Um, so John Leeson, who is best known as being the best boy ever, mm-hmm. is in the story. K-9 is not. So because of the filming location that they were using, K-9 was unusable. Um they still decided to give John a role, and so they gave him the role of Dugin or Dugin or whatever the fuck you pronounce it, Dugin. Uh, Dugin. Um, which is, I believe, his only on-screen appearance in all of Doctor Who. The rest of it, he just does the voice of, of K9. Um, and apparently, like when they were talking about, like, oh, we're not going to have K9 because whatever. Apparently, like issues with, like, you know. K9 in the boat <laughs> last week <laughs> allowed them to sort of explain away yeah he doesn't do well with water <laughs> right <laughs> we're in a swamp just leave well enough alone um, so the set designs for this the head of cereals Graham MacDonald was so unimpressed that he ordered that the designer Don Giles never work on the series ever again Ooh. by sheer coincidence though there is a line in episode 3 where the doctor criticizes the Swampy's decor and recommends <laughs> that the architect is fired. <laughs> like it's like this weird sort of art imitating reality thing. Yeah. And I'm curious if that line was in there after like, the fact. Before or after the fact. Like they say it's yeah. by coincidence, but I'm like, mm, is it really? Also, <laughs> if he got fired because the set for this thing was crap. And he built it to a line in the script that said it was crap. <laughs> that would be so bad. Um, so one thing that you may notice when you're watching it, I don't know if I came across in your story recap, Addy, but you notice it when you're watching it, is that the episodes are notably shorter than average. So this is a thing that I've noticed with my story recaps, is that depending on what we're kind of thrown into, I have to, like... Part one is usually a bit longer in terms of the telling because I have to establish a lot more, like world, character types, organizations, that type of thing. But as you go down, like the story, the story length or each episode length for each part, uh, it gets progressively shorter and shorter because this seemed like the reprises were a lot longer than they normally are. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing. So the reprises were very long. So like, normally an episode is between twenty three and twenty five minutes long. Mm. The episodes of this serial were just over twenty one minutes, 
And particularly parts three and four, like I said, they have a longer than usual reprise, both clocking in at close to 90 seconds each, hmm. reprising from the previous episode. The final runtime for the whole serial is 90 minutes, which is quite short. <laughs> what do you think about it? Um, and the novelization for the story, which was done by Terence Dix, he named the moon Delta Three, but this was never used on screen. Interestingly, the sacrificial stone is referred to as the Stone of Blood. Confusing, as earlier this season we had the Stones of Blood. Mm-hmm. Random. <laughs> the Doctor talking to himself before his final encounter with Kroll, um, where he says he's 106 years old. This suggests he's either rounding up <laughs> as his age was given as a hundred as 759 in the ribos operation or he had his birthday um so i don't know if they actually took graham williams's plan of having a doctor who or the plan for the <laughs> director of stones of blood mm-hmm. had for having a doctor episode as the doctor actually did have a birthday and graham williams is like what the fuck are you doing um but yeah so he either he's rounding up or his birthday is somewhere between the Stones of Blood on no. Hmm. Romana is the only female character in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, people may be a little bit confused with the crocheted woolen hair that the Swampies have, but no, they're all male. Uh, the previous occasion which this happened was Pyramids of Mars. It's been a while since we've only had one female character. And it, uh, as it, there's no supporting characters, no background characters yeah. or whatever. Um, and do you know when it next happens? The 11th Doctor. Really? Mm-hmm. It's the next time that there is an all-male cast with only one female performer. Now, I think that does include, like, random extras in the fucking background. Because mm. I'm sure there are some episodes that have very few or no main female characters. Oh yeah, there's always bound to be like at least some female character knocking around the background doing something, even as a pedestrian type thing. Yeah, but there wasn't in this one. Um, the green makeup for the Swampies, that was mm-hmm. specifically ordered from Germany. Unfortunately for the actors though, uh, the solvent needed to remove the makeup wasn't ordered at the same time. <laughs> so they had two options. Uh, chemical showers at RAF Bentwaters, which is near where they were filming, or have their skin scoured when they got to the hotel. And many of them were still green for weeks after the facts. <laughs> this is why I, you know, I'm not an actor or whatever. If I ever was, fuck off with the full body paint. Mm. No, not happening. Um, According to the DVD, elements of the story were later reused in the caves of Androsony. I can't speak to that because I haven't seen it. Let's wait and see. Um, Frederick Yeager, T.P. McKenna and Gary Watson were each offered the role of Rankin before it went to our final actor. Um, Originally, Martin Jarvis was meant to play Dugin and John Leeson replaced him. Michael Sheard was also offered the role. Mm. We do like a good mention of Michael Sheard. Mm. We really um, do. Yeah. So Jodo is saying that um, Philip Maddock was offered and then 
subtracted on. There was another person in the mix as well, George Baker, <sighs> who Neil replaced him. And oh, that sounds like a thing. Um, Michael Hayes, who was asked to direct the story, decided not to do that. Um, the story is arbitrarily dated to be 2878, and that's in um, A History of the Universe. Um, mm. As Kroll manifests every couple of centuries. So it has to be far enough in the future for that to happen. And this is the fourth manifestation. There's been at least 800 years since Delta Magna was colonized. Obviously, this was set in the 70s, so they thought we'd be colonizing better. Um, a more concrete date was made in Diamond Dogs, which takes place in the 51st century and refers to Ram Dutt as being an active criminal. So it's actually closer to the 51st century. Mm. The tune the doctor plays on his reed flute is. I'm going to get Francis wrong. Badinery Orchestral Suite Number no. 2 in B minor by Bach. Um, Graham Williams later described the story as tacky and that it contained the worst effect shot of his tenure. Well, maybe if you didn't hold Bob Holmes by the balls, he would have been able to write something a bit better. Mm. Mm. Um, Mary Tam described this as her worst filming experience, saying that being stuck in the mud and miles away from anywhere wasn't exactly fun. Um, obviously, one can look at the Swampies and compare them in allegory to indigenous peoples from a number of places, particularly um, indigenous Americans. Uh, Delta Magna was originally named Ganymede. I can see why they didn't go with Ganymede. Um, Graham Williams was sick actually during production, so Anthony Reid and John Nathan Turner, who was then unit manager, assumed the producing duties, and they were helped by David Maloney. So while Graham was ill, there's sort of like a pulling together of everybody to, yeah. to keep things going. Um, the visual effects designer Tony Harding intended to achieve the giant squid using a model which would be inserted into the film material via split screen. So the model would appear on top of the frame and the location footage on the bottom. But the cameraman, actually on poor advice, elected not to expose the proportion of the film, which meant that a hard line would appear in the completed effect, rendering it basically useless. They couldn't do the effect ever, which was sucks. On to our cast. So as Varlik, we have Carol Rake. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. His non-Who credits include The Living Daylights, Life Force, and Squadron. As Rankin, we have John Abenary. Mm-hmm. Final appearance for John. We previously saw him in Fury from the Deep, The Ambassadors of Death, and Death to Daleks. I did not realize he was the same person. <laughs> <laughs> no? At all. It's, no, it's the, the green, green paint. paint and the green paint and the crochet hair really hit him well. Um... Scart is played by Frank Jarvis. This is the third and final appearance for Frank. We previously saw him in The War Machines and Underworld. His non-who credits include The Plane Makers, The Saint, Dixon of Doc Green, Adam Adamant Lives, and The Star. Frank passed away in 2010. Rom Dutt is played by Glenn Owen. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit, though he has done some work with The Big Finish. His non-who credits include Attack on the Iron Coast, The Trollenberg Terror, and Blake Seven. Glenn passed away in 2004. Fawn is played by Neil McCarthy. This is the second and final appearance for Neil. We previously saw him in The Mind of Evil as George Patrick Barnum. Basically, he was the tall sort of... Um, he was the prisoner that was being experimented on first yeah. by The Mind of Evil. Yeah, and he looked a little bit sort of um, lurch-like. <laughs> in that, yeah, I I, I, yeah, because you you commented on it and then I made you feel bad by pointing out that he suffered from acromalgy, the... Yeah. Uh, form of gigantism type thing yeah um his non-who credits include zulu 
Clash of the Titans and where eagles dare. Yes, and I've fashion. actually I I recently watched Zulu and oddly enough the whole concept of the movie Zulu does kind of tie into this. Mm. And I um I'll talk about it when we actually get to his character. Um, Neil sadly passed away in 1985. As Fenner, as I previously mentioned, we have Philip Maddock. This is story 404 for Philip. As I previously mentioned, he never came back. And um, we previously saw him in The Crotons, The War Games, and The Brain of Morbius. Lastly, as Dugin, we have John Leeson, who took over after the actor Martin Jarvis became unavailable. Thus endeth the trivia. <laughs> because of conversation that we had. In the in-between times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I've never seen? You've never seen Clash of the Titans, have I've you? never seen Clash of the Titans. Either version. Uh, don't, do not, do not watch the new version. I only want to watch the new version for one reason, which is a story that Emma Thompson told on Graham Norton. Which about is? About how she was filming Nanny McPhee at the same time. And mm-hmm. she went over to their set to visit. And... Uh, who was playing Zeus in that? Uh, Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, yeah. So she went in as Nanny McPhee mm-hmm. into Olympus, sat on Liam Neeson's lap, and they start having <laughs> a conversation. And then Ray finds, they're like, you hear something like, okay, set up, ready. And she's like, shit, I have to go. He's like, no, no, you're fine. You're fine. Uh, Rafe is just going to come in. He's going to tell me something. And then he's going to leave. It's great. <laughs> and she's like, I can't fucking be here. So she hid behind his throne. Yeah. So in the actual film, Nanny McPhee is hiding behind Zeus's throne, which I just want to watch it just for that. You can't see her, obviously, but I want to be able to say I've seen that clip. This is completely irrelevant to everything we're talking about in this story, but slight Uh, spoiler, it's more fucking interesting. (laughs) The original Clash of the Titans is fantastic. Like, it's, it's... it's one of the later era stop motion animation movies, mm. um, but it's so good. The sequence with Medusa is it is legitimately terrifying. The the tension there is incredible. It's so good. The the, the only problem with it is that mm. I've been slightly spoiled mm. by um, I've listened to and read a lot of books and uh, stand up comedy by um, Natalie Haynes who is uh, a woman who writes books basically retelling mm. the Greek stories from the female perspective and I look at Medusa very different now <laughs> <laughs> but yeah this is a complete random side tangent um, I'll put it to this so people Patty and I have been recording for an hour and 16 minutes yeah. you look at your how far into the podcast we are we are not an hour and 16 minutes <laughs> My last bit of Clash of the Titans related tomfoolery is a robot chicken sketch, which is like Zeus giving Perseus. He goes, he goes here, a shield that will stop any weapon and a sword, and a sword that can cut through any armor. Don't get, them, don't get them beside each other. I can't remember which one beats which. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Cool, cool. So we've done our story summary. Thank you, Paddington, very much. We have done our trivia. We've Thank gone you on a very r- much. 
you're very welcome. We've gone on a random fucking tangent about Clash mm-hmm. of the Titans. Mm-hmm. And now it's on to this story in particular and the characters therein. So we have the Doctor Normana. No Best Boy K9 this time around. He was stuck in a box. Um, and then we have our prominent story-based characters. companions. I don't think we have any. No. So it'll be prominent characters and villains. So for villains, I had just two, which was Thawne and Rankwin. Everyone else I listed as a prominent. Did you have the same or? Uh, so I I kind of like had a kind of a flippy flappy fl- uh, between people. So I have Thawne and Rome Dutt as villains, mm. and everyone else is a prominent character. Mm. Uh, I left Rankwin in there because I think he's more like we've talked about the villain by circumstance as opposed mm. to being an out and out villain. Yeah. Because mm, yeah, ob- I suppose objectively speaking, like well, yeah, he is—he's the leader of an oppressed people trying to fight back for their heritage. That wasn't why I had him as a villain. That had nothing to do oh with well, it. no, like yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but in terms of the story, like the context, you know, yeah, um, I think yeah. why did I not have Wrong Dot as a villain? I think I forgot. No, I can see him in the villain category. Never mind. Might be a bit of a recurring motif with this particular story, but we'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. We'll get there. But first, uh, we have the I, doctor. Yeah. How about I lead us off? <laughs> yeah, because your turn. Yeah. Doctor, cool. thoughts, please. Paddington, go. Doctor, you do realize that there's a high chance that the natives will kill Fenner, right? <laughs> For those of you listening, the eyes have wide opened widely by Trisha. Um, like, it's that type of nonchalant, carefree attitude about the Doctor that really fucking drives me insane. <laughs> because it's like, you, like, he can get so passionate uh, and, like, about what could be essentially like the most, like, minuscule things. But it's like, this is, you've left a person in the care of a group of people that hate him. Mm-hmm. And are, are and we're more than willing to fucking kill him, like not even like ten minutes ago. Like, what's going to happen to him? Yeah, this isn't the thing, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we'll talk about Fenner himself in a little bit, right? But yeah, an important thing to bear in mind hmm. is the swampies, as they're called. Which I don't particularly like using that term, but the only the only name to give it. No, and like that's the thing that bothers me as well. I'll. Get on to yeah. that once you've made your point. So they wanted to destroy the refinery mm-hmm. and the people on it mm-hmm. long before Kroll ever appeared. Yes. Kroll being defeated does not change anything for them. No. And you can actually see it where like he's like, Oh Fenner, like so- someone will be by to pick you up shortly, I'm sure. In the meantime, I'm sure these people take good care of you. Then he fucking swans off. Fenner looks like he's about to shit himself. Mm. And the rest of them look at him with like what can only be described as like like anger turning we... to malicious glee. Like <laughs> which, par- which part do we chop off first? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> um... Dude, at least get him off the refinery <laughs> somewhere else. It's so like against Fenner in particular, it's callous. Mm-hmm. do you know and it 
it rubs me the same way as letting a guy walk off with a bomb strapped to his chest. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's we've the doctor I think has kind of reverted mm. back to where he was at the start of the season. Because mm. another thing as well, you mentioned the word swampies, which is comparative to certain words that we're not going to say on this thing because we don't like those words. Mm. But to compare it to something within the confines of the show, it's no different than the mutts from the mutants. Mm. All right. The this is the second time like the doctor has had no problem using a racial slur. Like repeat like you know, he because like do you remember in Brain of Morbius they found mm. A yeah. mutant, and he referred to it as a mutt. Here, he continually refers to the natives as swampies. I like because like I hate, hate that term. I was just calling them natives the whole time. So it really bothers me that the doctor was going along with this terminology. Yeah, and at first I was like, well, he doesn't know what they're actually called, and mm. they don't refer to themselves as anything else. Yeah, do you know? And they refer to the humans as dryfoots. As dryfoot, so you know. At first, I thought maybe it was just that, but then I'm like, no, he knows what fucking moon he's on. He knows what planet mm. these fucking people are from. He knows that just from going outside and throwing his hat up in the air. Yeah, like <laughs> surely he knows what these people are called. And if they actually are called swampies, if that's their actual fucking like, if they <laughs> if they never had a name for their race before mm. one was given to them, and they just they're like, yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's a bit fucking shit. <laughs> <Do you> yeah. Because <laughs> actually, oh. th- that's actually one interesting thing. Is they're not natives to this moon. No, they're natives to Delta Magna. And yeah. they were all... F- and they were like the, moved. The moons are essentially reservations. Yeah. And even then, they're being encroached on. Yeah. Um. um but yeah. But overall, like, the only thing that I think is, like, there's nothing really outstanding here for the Doctor. It's not really we haven't seen before. Mm. The one thing that I do like is that his his relationship with Romana has actually grown to genuine care. Yes. Because he is adamant that he has to find her. Like, he doesn't forget about her the minute he's brought to the refinery. It's, mm. I need to find Romana. I need to find Romana. Please let me go. I need to find Romana. Um, willing to brave the storm to go out, willing to brave the dark, willing to brave the treacherous area to go find Romana. And as well, when he goes to sabotage the rocket, you know, it's like, well, we better say our goodbyes now. And he closes the door on her. And she nearly, fa- as I said, she nearly mm. falls for the whole, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're not leaving me behind type thing. Mm. So he has a genuine care for her, which is great to see. And it's great to see that relationship grow over the last number of stories. So I like that aspect of it. Mm. But yeah, I th- I think we're on to a thing where it's like I'm not really fond of the Doctor in this story overall. Yeah. Like for me, for the most part, it's Doc Tom being Doc Tom. Do you know, like I said, there's yeah. nothing outstanding. There's nothing mm. new. A good, what I would consider a good continuation of the Romana relationship from last story. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I can remember, though, that sticks in my mind is him leaving Fenner. Mm-hmm. I said the Swampies thing bothers me, but I think that's just lazy writing mm. by not coming up with a indigenous name. Although he could have referred to them as the Delta Magnans, and that would have been 
Yeah. I've I've now I've now just fixed the problem yet shit that he didn't call them that. Yeah. Um but after what we've seen, particularly last week, this is just seems sort of meh. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. he didn't do anything amazing. Um even him going out, and I'll get to this in my overall in more detail, but even him going out and be like, Oh, I have an idea. Clearly crawl ate the thing. It's like, of course he fucking did it. Like Yeah. Why is this being treated like a fucking surprise? Like mm. what? So yeah, um for the most part it's Doc Tom we have some science doctor, we have some this, we have some that, we have some whatever, but mm. um nothing outstanding and the overall thing, the overall feeling is negative. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Oh. Yeah, which yeah, especially after the last Tree stories, definitely. Mm. Yeah. Then we have Romana. Or do we? I was... <laughs> I was terrified that this day would come. I really was. She's full-on damsel in distress here. Yep. Like, at least last week, she broke free. And she rescued the doctor. Mm-hmm. Granted, though, it was on her way to escaping that she rescued him. But you know, it still counts as one on the fucking scoreboard. Here, it's... It's nothing. She, you know, screaming victim at the end of part one. Mm-hmm. Um, even at the very end of the story, she is a bit of a ditz because it's like this big giant squid thing is attacking the refinery. Well, he doesn't know we're here. I'm going to take a look. And it's like he's attacking the fucking refinery. It doesn't matter if he knows that you're in there or not. You're in there and he's attacking it. So... Also, like, how do you think this thing tracks people, my love? Like, mm. and you've been told repeatedly by movement. <laughs> yeah, like, <sighs> it's like, like we talked about her not being able to, like, you know, not having much to do last week. Mm. Here, this is no, this is just like kind of the war. We talked before. I think it was we talked in the Pirate Planet about that fucking biographer of douglas adams who said like mm. you know oh they just fucking stand around and scream all this kind of maybe you know in this particular one he's right like yeah she she like, she does she does nothing to add to the plot um she's served solely to show just how villainous one particular character is mm. which i'll get to um but other than that like there's just she might not. Have, she might as well not have even been in the story. Like, yeah, and that's the thing. She's completely fucking wasted here. Like, mm. when I was watching it, I was like, okay, we now have another part of like the second part, arguably the first part of the King Kong story. Because mm-hmm. in Robot, we had to say to the end of the King Kong story where he gets really big and he picks up Sarah Jane, he puts her on top of the building, right? Yeah. Here we have the start of King Kong, where the native tribe ties her to a rock and mm-hmm. waits for the big giant creature to come and kill her. Mm-hmm. And do you know what the worst thing is? Mary Tam, for all that I've really come to like her performance as Romana, she can't play damsel in distress. Her no. screaming for help is completely fucking unbelievable. She she just can't. She's too strong a presence. Mm. To pull off the screaming damsel in distress. <laughs> Particularly when you look at what it was that was attacking her. That she could have was kicked in the crotch and she would have been fine. Mm. Um, 
because that effect was or that costume was fucking shocking it was. um so she's completely fucking wasted she literally does nothing but be the damsel in distress like at first i thought that we were going to have some good work with her and rom dot before rom dot was revealed to be who he is i was like oh this would be interesting now like she'll eventually free herself and maybe she'll partner up with Ram Dutt and they'll try to help the whatever. Then he's revealed as being a villain. Mm-hmm. And she she literally does fuck all for the next three episodes. Like what did she actually do? Nothing. Nothing. She couldn't even figure out. Like and this is the thing, like she was the one that was so fucking surprised, like, oh, how did you know the big giant fucking squid that goes to sleep for years and end? Is where the thing was. I may have forgotten that I couldn't get a specific reading on it. And it covered a 45 degree area. No. How did you know? Mm. Fucking. You dumb bitch. This is your fucking. <laughs> this is your fucking thing. Do you know? Um, and I don't know. Like, even the fact that they had her. Like she dropped the tracer. Which is fine. Like it's a, it's a stick. Mm. It's fact that she dropped it. It's like. Oh no. I found it. I was like. Of course he does. Of course he found us. Do you know what I mean? Like and, she didn't even this get, is, She got no redemption for dropping the fucking thing. No, and this this is two weeks in a row now where the doctor has had to kind of go, no, no, I have it. Yeah, which is just like a oh, fuck off. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think as much as we've had a couple of issues with the way Romana was portrayed in other stories, like particularly um, Stones of Blood, you know, I had my big issue with the, the end of that. Hmm. I know you had some issues with Pirate Planet that you didn't kind of similar to my thoughts on Stones of Blood, whatever, but mm. like for this one, I'm just like Oh, there's 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 no take You literally could have done the exact same thing with fucking K9 and had K9 being sacrificed, it would have been the exact same fucking story. Like it wouldn't have mattered. You could have you could have had the doctor bump into a random woman. Could, she could have been a random woman from the refinery who was out taking mineral samples and the story would have been exactly the fucking same. No difference. So I suppose in a slight spoiler I think we found our number six on her rambling. Well, I haven't seen next week yet. But at this point, I hope, just, I, hope unless, I found my number six. I hope next week is better. Unless she just decides to go, fuck it, you do it for <laughs> for the next six episodes. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, unfortunate is, yeah. is what comes to mind. And it's, you know, it, I think it's it's much worse when you have like a character that's like you know this on this great upward trajectory and it just fucking nosedives like when it's someone that's written inconsistently like you, you kind of accept it whereas this it's it just seemed to be kind of going character growth character growth character growth character, and also poof. yeah like i was trying to think of like a comparison to another companion we've had and the one that came to mind was liz shaw liz shaw also had one season Mm-hmm. That is kind of an arc in its own right. Do you know? It's the strand on Earth thing. Yeah. And they didn't know what to do with her. Mm-hmm. And the one that came to mind was Ambassador's Death. Yeah. Because Liz gets captured in Ambassador's Death. Mm. Liz escapes once on her own. She has mm-hmm. an amazing chase sequence that gets her captured in the first place. Mm-hmm. And while she's captured, she's fucking doing shit. Mm-hmm. Even though the Doctor fucking forgets about her. So that's a plus in this story's favour in comparison. She's doing her own shit. Mm. Here, Romana did sweet 
bugger fuck all. Mary Tam might as well have just taken four weeks off. Yeah. Also, it's kind of scarily coincidental that uh, John Abadari was in both of the, was in both those. Yes, stories. I realized that after I said it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you blaming? Are you saying it's his fault? <laughs> no. Uh. But let's go on to our prominent, um, prominent characters. characters, of which we have many. Yeah. <laughs> so, will we do one group and then the other group? Yeah, I th- I think one group and then the other group. Um, will we start off with the the Dryfoots? <laughs> yes. So for the Dryfoots, we have Fenner and Dugin. Hmm. Why don't you start with Fenner? What were your thoughts on Fenner? Yeah. So Fenner reminds. Okay, Fenner comes across as the type of guy that's like, "Don't rock the boat, tow the party line." But the philosophy goes in both ways, in yes. the sense of he doesn't want to do anything that will disrupt his comfort of you know of life in terms of like his status and like what his I suppose privilege has for him. Mm. But he doesn't want anyone to compound that by making these like like taunts, aggressive actions. Mm. And he really reminds me of this character that um appears in that movie uh, I've mentioned a few times, The Wild Geese. Mm. He plays a former South African um, soldier who was like uh, fighting guerrilla fighters from like, you know, the the anti-apartheid groups. Mm. And there's a section there like at the end, like or just before the mission starts, he talks about um, just black South Africans. And he says like, I don't, I... I don't particularly like them, I ju- I, but I don't like killing them. Hmm. That is Fenner here, I believe. I have no, per- I don't particularly like the Swampies, but I, I don't condone this genocidal approach that you have to yeah. dealing with them. And that's that's very much it is. Like he, he's happy to reap the rewards, but he knows that there is a, like, there's a limit to the actions that they can take. Where it's like, okay, like if we do this we're we're savage in a different way mm. um and the thing is as well is that i think had philip been offered this role first as opposed to being like the the second choice second choice last choice i think he could have brought a bit more passion to it because mm. it's very it's very passionless i think yeah. but i think i agree that he was definitely first choice for um thorn i think mm. We've seen him in that in that maniacal type of role before, and he's great in it. He's fantastic, mm. and I'm not taking anything away from Neil's performance. We'll talk about that in a minute, but I I feel like that potentially those roles should have been swapped. Yeah. So for me, with Fenner, it's actually I actually really liked Fenner, which is weird. Um, I wasn't expecting to because I watched it. Philip walked in the room. I was like, "Oh, this guy's fucking." Mm. It's Christopher Lee syndrome. You're like, nah, yeah. no way is Fenner on the up and up. No. No fucking way is he on the up and up. And as Thrawn starts being revealed, you sort of think like, oh, Fenner's the right. Like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> as Thrawn, Thrawn starts being revealed. As Thrawn starts being revealed. It's like mm-hmm. a, a fucking Acropolis. Um, as Thrawn starts being revealed, <laughs> you assume Fenner is his right hand. That Fenner mm-hmm. knew what was happening, and Fenner mm-hmm. wanted it as well, but he's he fucking didn't. No, Fenner's like, what the fuck do you mean? You set them up. 
what are you on about? Yeah. And the way I see Fenner is, and again, speaking from a certain perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know, if we're talking about the the Swampies being, you know, Native Americans or Aborigines or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, Fenner is kind of like the sort of, you know, colonial who wasn't involved in fighting, just a guy doing a job. Mm. Do you know, he's a guy in a western who just runs the shop and mm. he does his job and he gets fucking pissed when Indians, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, come into town and wreck things and make life difficult because he's like, no, I'm just a guy trying to do a fucking job. Leave me alone. I'm just here to do my job. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And he's clearly very good at his job. <laughs> yeah, know? he is. Um. And he's one of those people who sort of says, like, oh, well, you know, like, they have the swamps and they can live there and sure they'll be happy out there. Like, and we're going to stay over here on our thing and it'll be fine. Like, we're going to have perpetual energy from this. Don't worry about it. Like, they're grand. Mm -hmm. But he's not. (laughs) He's an oblivious person. Yeah. Not a bad person. Yeah. Again, because it's the whole. My job has afforded me a certain type of lifestyle and I like my lifestyle. I don't want anything to upset the apple cart. Yeah, but also like he, I think he even realizes that. Like, do you know what I mean? Like that he's just like, no, yeah. this is this is my life, and I forgot about it. Yeah. But is it? Is the minute he realizes that Thawne knew what was happening, hmm. he's like, "What the ever living fuck are you doing?" Yeah, and particularly, and this is what I actually really like about him is why I wish that Philip was a bit more passionate about it hmm. when Dugin is killed. Yeah, there is no fucking convincing Fenner. Otherwise, like I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to report you. You mm-hmm. killed him for no fucking reason. I don't care who he was. I don't care what he was doing. That's fucking murder. You get away. Like, and like this is not a guy that toes the party line. Do you know? Mm-hmm. He was doing a job. He was commissioned to do a job, and he was doing it. Like he's mm-hmm. a rigger. He's a whatever. He's doing his job. Fuck you, dude. Like he's not. He's not um, Thawne's man. Do you yeah. know, would you think at the start of the episode he is? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think Philip pulled it off really well. But I still think it could have been better. Oh, it could have. Which it just speaks been... to Philip uh, as an actor. Do you know? Mm. I think it could have been better had he been more invested. And you know, guys, I know, one of the highlights of the story for me was actually Fenner as a character. Because he completely went against what I thought he was going to be, and they did it well. Yeah, I just think they could have done it better than it, well. It, it, like again, missed opportunity by not realizing, or maybe not, maybe not realizing, but maybe not giving fucking Philip his proper respect because he's mm. a fantastic actor. He really is. Yeah. And if you really, if you want him for something, you want him for something. He's not a a backup consideration, you know. Yeah, and like even At least like, to me. Like, I understand, like, when we talk about Tom, we might talk a little bit more, but I think as Fenner, it's interesting for me to see Philip be the guy that you assume is evil, but he actually isn't. Yeah. It was nice no. to see that with him, because we don't get that often with him. No. Um, so I actually liked seeing that. But again, mm. I think I think he was burned, and yeah. I think this was a paycheck. Yeah. No, it it really was. Which is unfortunate, because... Mm. I liked what we got, but mm. I know it could have been better. 
Mm-hmm. No, no, I agree. Then we have the young man himself. Small Doug. Dugin. <laughs> Dugin. Um, I think Dugin is very much this story's version of the good German. You know? Mm. Um, like, I'm not, you know, like, I'm not a Nazi. I am just a German person. And it's like, because he really does advocate for leaving the swampies or the the natives alone. Mm. It's like they've been pushed enough. They deserve to live their lives in peace. Um, as you say, like he's also one of those people who's like, we're here to do a job. We're not here to cause any more damage than is necessary. Mm. Um, and his death is kind of tragic because I like how he's never cowed by Thorn. He mm. he, like, he never like is meek or he never like shirks away from confronting him. And he does confront him a fair amount, and it's great. And he refuses to buy into the diatribe. He refuses to even entertain it because of, again, he's also someone that's benefiting from the colonizing of Delta Magna, from his social circumstances, that kind of stuff. But he refuses to push it anymore. Mm. And his death, as I said, is tragic because... You raised the point back in Robots of uh, Robots of Death with D eighty four. His sacrifice doesn't amount to anything. Yeah. It, like you know, he he's shot and killed, and the countdown still happens, and it's up, and it's only stopped by the doctor, and he doesn't realize that because you know like he dies, and I suppose the one catharsis is that like you know he died trying to do a good thing. Mm. He died showing he died not trying to redeem himself. But he died by being the person that he was. He died by being a good person. Yeah. Like my read. First, I saw the game. I was like, hi, John. But yeah. it's like baby John. Like he's yeah. so young looking. Um, I think the thing with Dugin is that he's a genuinely nice person. Mm-hmm. Dugin's like, job is he's basically like the sonar expert. Yeah. And I get the sense that like this is research for him do you know like he's not a company man Mm. he's a sonar technician he was assigned to this job so fine but like you said like he is someone who like i almost get the sense that he took the position because he wanted to limit the damage do you Mm. know (laughs) and he's like well if i go i can identify where the best pockets are that will limit the damage and whatever um, I, like you are waiting for him to reveal that he is part of the Sons of Earth. Do you yeah, know what I mean? I, You're waiting, waiting for that, that reveal, and you know, maybe it happens in the book that it comes out that he is. But I think the important thing is that, like, he's just like, look, we're here to do a job. Okay, fine, whatever. But can we do it without fucking impacting anyone? And in many ways, this is going to sound really weird. This story reminds me of the TNG episode Journey's End. This idea of you have a displaced people on the planet and you're trying to displace them fucking again. Mm. And in that, obviously, you have Wesley standing up and being like, no, yeah. what the shit? And in in, in a very broad sense, Dugan kind of reminds me of that. Mm. Um, and like you said, he isn't cowed by any of them. No. Do you know? Um, he's not zealot like Thorn. He's not um, full on 
you know, will they ever fuck off and let me do my job like Fenner? Mm-hmm. He's a nice person. And mm-hmm. like when he hears what's being planned, he's like, you can tell the panic is building in him the whole time. I think his death was obviously devastating. Again, like just I love Fenner's reaction to it. Because you kind of get the sense that Dugin was little Doug, like, do you know, like he was, yeah. <laughs> you know, the young fella, like, and sure everyone was looking out for him and that type of mm-hmm. thing, you know, and particularly Fenner is hurt by it. And the fact that Fenner so her tells you more about Dugin as a character, do you know, yeah. the fact that that's the way his reaction was. I do hate the fact that it was for nothing. Do you know, the only thing that his death did was reinforce that Fenner is on the neutral side yeah in this particular dynamic um and that's pretty much it do you know Mm. um it's never revealed that you know dugin was the only one who was nice to um the native who was mensch yeah it's never revealed that dugin was the only one who was nice to mensch or Mm -hmm. or whatever like you know they didn't tell like when the doctor was saying like oh only the six of you and you know like tom's like five and he's like no six or like four whatever the number was yeah you, know, you didn't we didn't have Dougie under his breath being like no it is it is six mm. or it is five, whatever the actual number of people in the room was mm. um which is unfortunate but we got to see john <laughs> yeah that was nice <laughs> and john's a good actor john, he is. Is, like i i don't mean that to sound like a surprising thing i've never seen him acting on screen i only ever know him as K, the voice of k9 so he is a good actor. His performance was really good. Mm. Um, I think. I think there like, that just that just goes to prove what we've been saying about him as K nine. Mm. Like clearly, him acting out the role of K nine before going to do the audio recording helps him just as much as it helps the actors yeah. in those scenes. Yeah. So I loved seeing John. I think I I do sort of like look back and kind of like. I want to see more of Dugin and Fenner together. Mm. Do you know, like the old man being like, oh, fuck it, we'll just do our job, whatever. And the young sort of idealist, yeah. you know, whatever. I think that would have been a good dynamic if we, if this had been, fuck it, if this had been a longer story, then that would have been a good dynamic to see. Mm. But yeah. Uh, good boy, John. Good boy, John. Best boy, John. Yeah. So now then, we have the natives. We do. So you had Scart on your list, and I'm not quite sure why. I think it was just because like he was there for a while, and he seemed to pop up whenever something important was happening. We can skip him if you want, because like, the only thing that he really reminds me of, to a much lesser degree, is Ixta from the Aztecs. Yeah, like, the only thing I say to him is that he's a loyal priest to Ranquin, right is the way that I would read it. Like He's, a, yeah. he's loyal to Ranquin. Yeah, because he dresses up like a fucking donkey to do this thing, mm. and he comes across as a bit dumb. Yeah, he. There's just I think he's. If you have Rankin as the the village elder, mm. he's kind of the devil on the shoulder to Varlick's rational angel. You know? Yeah. Um, but he just comes across as a bit fucking stupid, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, no. So we can just leave him off. Like again, he was yeah. just like he was treading that line of he's there enough at just the right impactful moments to potentially talk about something, but also like I see like my scale is that professor from Tomb of the Cybermen who did nothing. 
so that, that's why scale I'm like yeah, he was slightly better than him but at the same time I think not by much hmm. I might need to rework the scale so we can do Varlik and Ranquin yeah so Varlik first I think um, thoughts on Varlik Bobby I think Varlik is the counterpart to he's the counterpart to Dugin and Fenner maybe more hmm. so Fenner in in this story because he's more rational than Scart is. Mm. He only wants the 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 humans. He, he he doesn't want to murder them all. He just wants them off the moon. He just mm. wants them off their planet. And it's a case it's a case of look, we're never going to get Delta Magna back. But can you please just get the fuck off this moon and leave us in peace? Mm. He's ha- he's happy enough with that. Um which is why I think so long as he's has a so long as he has a voice that people will listen to in the the village, Fenner is safe. Mm. I think Fenner's fate rely, is at this point in time solely reliant on how Varlick treats him. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I think like, for me, with Varlick, like Varlick is the we always we've seen this in stories before, um, where we have the bad leader who has the good second. Mm-hmm. Do you know, and yeah. that's what Varlik is. He's the good second that you you want to be the leader. Do you know because yeah. he would be a good leader. Mm-hmm. Um, he's clearly very dedicated to his people. Do you mm-hmm. know, like he's perfectly willing to take up arms to fight. That that isn't his problem. Mm-hmm. But he's no sheep. No, he's not. Do he you, really like, isn't. Like like when he's saying to Romana and the Doctor, he's like, you know, oh, you know, they're doing the seventh seal fucking <laughs> like the, the seventh yeah. um trial whatever the fuck it is yeah we're going to stretch you till you die he's like i didn't ask for that he still yeah. thinks that they need to die because they went against whatever but he's like mm-hmm. what that fucker did and what you did completely fucking different things yeah and that's the thing it's like you know like i think he's like even trying to, at one point he does advocate for their entire innocence because they're not yeah. from the refinery yeah. Um, and he and he's knows, like, you know, if you are to die, then I'd rather just be that we pelt you at rocks and you die quickly. Yeah, and that, that's it. It's a case <laughs> of like, if I can't get you free, I want your death to be as painless as possible. Yeah. Um. So he questions. He has his own mind, and like when Kroll is revealed, he's like, "Yeah, fucking no." Like, this is ra- this is not what we thought. Mm-hmm. No, like, fuck off. Yeah. He he's. <laughs> He is just a rampaging. He's he's a he's a beast. Hmm. He's not an intelligence deity. He does he not know just, we are here. Yeah, <laughs> like, and um, that's like, we're we're just prey to him, and that's yeah. and he sees that. I agree with you that Fenner's life is kind of in Varlik's hands, and mm-hmm. that for me is like for stories that for episodes that were so short. That for me is what I would have liked to have seen, where where the Doctor fucking swans off. Mm-hmm. And Romana too. Like we can't just hold it on the doctor. Romana does it too, but Romana says nothing else. Yeah. Else, um. And you, Fenner, kind of about to prick himself, and the remaining native people turn to him, and like they look, like, yeah, hey, mm. the guy who was kind of nice is gone. So what? I would have liked to have seen Varlik step forward, and be like, "You will stay here until your people come to pick you up." Yeah. And just vouch out. We had enough time 
for them to give him two lines where he vouches for Fenner. And is yeah. like, we don't like you. We don't want you here. Mm-hmm. You stay here. Your people come get you. And we leave you alone. Like that that's all they needed to have for him to be in my mind, like the the perfect version of what Varlick could be, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, they had the time, they just didn't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Then we have Rankin. Rankin. Is he the first high priest character that hasn't been in on the scam or have his fate shattered before his demise? Yes. Because I was trying to think back and I was like, if he's not the first, he's definitely the first in a long time. But I think he is the first. He is. It's so weird because you kind of, originally I thought him a bit like your man from Face of Evil. Nima, yeah. Yeah. Who was clearly putting on an act. Mm -hmm. Like all this fucking fake shite that he was doing. was clearly an act and he knew it was an act. But there was also this other power. Mm-hmm. that he did truly believe in yeah and then he tried to fight against mm-hmm. Rankin's just a fucking donkey like he's just a fucking idiot <laughs> do you know what I mean like the closest thing I can like if you go all the way back you know you mentioned Iktar earlier if we go back to Clitoxel I think Clitoxel I think he I, I think we had this discussion at the time and I think Clitoxel is in on the scam. Yeah, but like the closest I could do it would be Clitoxel. Oh yeah, yeah. In the sense that there's no redemption, there's no shattered thoughts at the end of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. But Clitoxel was intelligent. Clitoxel knew what he needed to do to keep mm. things going. And I wouldn't even say he was in on the scam. But like, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, he he was still in his own mind doing it in the name of someone. Yeah, but he knew yeah. what he was doing. Yeah, that's the what I mean. Like, there was rank, rank, rank. There's a fucking donkey. He doesn't fucking know what's going on. <laughs> yeah. No, just to clarify, when I say in in on the scam, I mean that he does not believe in the deities, but he knows the powers that pretending to worship those deities can give him as a priest. Yeah, I don't know. I think Clitoxel believes a little bit. But, like, he's also aware that, like, they... Like, he knows Barbara's a piece of shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like no, they, they don't no, no. take human yeah. form. Full of shit. Full of shit. <laughs> not shit. piece of shit. Well, no, from his mind. From his mind. Piece of shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, um, Barbara's amazing. Um, yes. I haven't mentioned her in a long time. So, yeah, Barbara's amazing. Yeah. Um, I, I, the thing with Rankin is that, like, he is someone who's bought so much into his own hype. Mm. That's where he's like your man from the face of evil. Except he's brought so much into it that he can't see what's right before his eyes. Mm. And he's like, oh, I prayed. And I was like, dude, there is no him. There's an it. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't know who you are. It heard no. a noise and went, ooh, smoosh. Yes. Absorb. Ooh, smoosh absorb it doesn't know it doesn't care but it, it actually um if you want to go back to the face of evil the doctor did say um the whole thing about how you know the closed system of thought that no other mm. idea can permeate it Rankin is definitely 
is, is definitely guilty of that here because he can't accept the fact that Kroll isn't the deity that he ascribes to. Yeah. Like, I've, I've, I've said it like four times already. I look at him and go, you fucking donkey. Like, hmm. <laughs> that's the only thing I can think of. Uh, um, the re- by the way, the reason why I had him in the villain category, right? I need to go mm-hmm. back to this for a second. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is the fact that, okay, so he was following ritual and tradition with Romana, right? Mm-hmm. Then when shit starts going wrong, he's doubling down on everything. And he's like, no, no, I don't care that they're not from the refinery. I don't care that even if your man had fucking, um, if Ramdot had speaking, sp- speaking, <laughs> spoken on their behalf, he was like, no, they all get the same fucking thing. It's yeah. all, it's because she didn't die. It's all because she didn't fucking die. That's what this is all about. It's all because of that. And like, I'm like, okay, like you may not be the villain of the story, but you're still. But to Romana, he definitely is. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Because he's. I think he goes from the line of prominent character into villainy when presented with evidence, and he takes the, the villainous route. Yeah, and I think particularly like if we're looking at like, is he a villain for the story? No, um, he's kind of a patsy for the story, really. If you think about it, mm. yeah. But he's Romana's primary villain. Mm-hmm. Romana doesn't know diddly fuck about the refinery. <laughs> All she knows is that this fucker keeps mm. trying to kill her in terrible ways, <laughs> <laughs> and she did nothing wrong. My only crime was to exist. <laughs> so then we have the sort of main villains of the piece. So there's mm-hmm. Ramdot and mm-hmm. Fawn with yes. the th. So thoughts on Ramdot. So the doctor calls him a rogue and I call him a cowardly rogue. A cowardly rogue. Cowardly rogue? <laughs> he's a like yeah, you know, he's, excuse me, speaking. <laughs> 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 he's a cowardly rogue because you mentioned Barbara earlier on mm. there's a scene in here that's very reminiscent of a scene with Barbara that made you very uncomfortable which mm. is Keys of Mar- actually yeah it's the arc Keys of Marina Keys of Marinus <laughs> Jesus we're awful tonight uh, the Keys of Marinus which um, I can't remember his name, but the mountain man mm. who, yeah, the way that he approaches her is very unsavory. There's something very reminiscent here because the only time that Ramdot expresses any sort of self-confidence is when he is threatening Romana when she's tied to that tree. That's the only time he ever exudes any sort of, you know, strength or belief in strength or anything like that. And we've talked before about the unsavory moments of sexual assault, mm. you know, back in the early days, like, you know, with Barbara, with that guy, and also even in the reign of terror. Um, now, it, obviously this scene stops before it gets anywhere near to that kind of stuff. But yeah, it just kind of just goes to show like what sort of a piece of shit that he actually is, that the only time he expresses any sort of 
confidence is when he's threatening a defenseless woman. Um, mm. Outside of that thing, outside that, there's like one thing that you can, initially you can think that you're going to argue it as slightly noble. And that's when the key here is that, oh, Thawne is going to attack us at dawn. He's like, no, no, you need to, you know, scatter into smaller groups. And it's like, oh, wait, you know, he, he's trying to save the natives. And it's like, no, no, he's just trying to disperse them so that he can escape easily because, you know, he's out to save his own skin. Um, so when he gets killed by Kroll, I, like, I've talked before about how cephalopods and squids and octopuses scared the shit out of me and being killed by one is a terrifying type of thing i'm like i don't care that this thing is killing you fuck off (laughs) yeah like for me rom dot is just a man who'll do anything for money is Hmm. my read on it yeah i don't think he cares about the natives of this planet home either oh no no she's not a hope i don't think he cares about the refinery either though do you know what i mean he was given Hmm. money to do a thing yeah, and that's what he's doing. Um, I do agree with you that initially when he's like, no, like it's because he's like, no, it shouldn't be. Like he's like, no, what the fuck are you on about? That's not the way this is meant to go. He's like, no, scatter or whatever, mm-hmm. scatter by. Um, <laughs> but you're saying it's so that he can escape. No, it's because one group in isolation finding out the weapons are defective is a lot safer for him than all of them finding out en masse. Yeah. Um, there's that problem. I agree with you with the Romana thing. I think in many ways like he would also be the villain for Romana. Mm-hmm. But then he hands that off to Rankwin and once Rankwin takes over that's pretty much it. But but it's a different type of villainy towards Romana because one is one is uh, Oh, what's the best way to put this? One source of villainy comes from like this creed or belief system. Mm. The other one just comes from like the fact that this guy's an asshole, you know? Yeah, well, because the thing about Rumdor is that he clearly only cares about himself. Like that's oh yeah, that's yeah. the bit that's most obvious in mm-hmm. all of it. Do you know? Um, I just want like, why didn't I put him as a villain originally? I think because. I generally don't think he had a side bar his own. Mm-hmm. So I see him as a tool. He was a tool for Thorn to get what he wanted. Mm-hmm. I don't think he particularly wanted to see the natives being wiped out. I don't think he gave a fiddler's fuck. But he definitely didn't relish in the thought of it. Mm-hmm. Do you know? He wasn't like, oh great, like, you know, yeah. I didn't think I'd be here for this part, but I fucking am. Fucking brilliant. Mm. There was none of that. Do you know? No. Um, he's a guy who'll do anything for money, and he got exactly what he deserved. Mm. Do you know? And that that's pretty much it. So lastly, we have Thawn. Mm. And I'm just thinking. Yes. Do you were saying that you were deliberately, like, stressing yourself to not say Thrawn? Yeah. Is this one of the few stories where your THs have been very pronounced and yes. not just sounding like a T? <laughs> or a D, you know? Or a D. There. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think you've been calling him Thawne the whole time and not Thawne. Y- yes. Thawne or Dawn. <laughs> yeah, I've been going Thawne. Yes. What were your thoughts so, on Thawne? 
<laughs> so very much the scheming bureaucrat who seeks to get rid of a personal problem by creating a public one. Mm. And no, that aside, it's also important to remember that he's just a racist prick. Um, so I mentioned before about uh, Neil's trivia. So Neil being in the movie Zulu, uh, very good movie. Not particularly, not the most historically accurate, but still very good. Um, so I've been, I've recently watched that, and I watched its prequel movie uh, Zulu Dawn, and the whole thing that it really kind of puts this story as an allegory towards that is because a lot of historians believe that the Zulu war was fabricated for the person, for the personal benefit of the governor of uh, the Natal region. Mm. Uh, he basically said that, Oh, well, you know, the Zulus are a threat to us. I know at this stage, the kind of the Zulu empire was kind of contained and it hadn't really shown any sort of aggression towards Natal or any of the European powers. Um, but they said, oh, they're, they're a big threat to us. They're a big threat to us. And he then sent a letter, an ultimatum saying, disband your armies, otherwise risk invasion. The Zulus kind of told him, fuck off. And he took advantage of postal delays between South Africa and Great Britain to go ahead and launch an invasion of Zululand without government approval. And at that stage, it was like, we have to save face. We can't fucking put out because of this guy's actions. And here, Thorne does essentially that. He tries to create this public problem by arming the natives and prodding them to uprise through proxies so that he can launch this genocide against them and take over their lands under the idea of it being just. You know? Yeah, like... I have not seen. I ha- I have yeah. not seen Zulu. The yeah. only thing I know about that whole thing is the line from Kumbachi Black and Tans. Is the only thing I know about that. <laughs> History is not my forte. Right? We've we've yeah. established it before. Um, yeah. Thorn is a crazy, bigoted, selfish prick, mm. and you can't believe a word that comes out of his mouth. No, because at one point he starts saying like, you know. I just don't want them here. They can go somewhere else. I just don't want them here. And then it devolves into this manic, I don't want them anywhere. Yeah. They need to just be gone. And it goes from being this guy who is, again, obsessed with his own position, obsessed with getting what he wants, you know, moving these lesser beings, quote unquote, lesser beings around as fits his needs. Like, oh, well, you know, like we put them on this moon, but I want the stuff on that moon, so I'm gonna have to move them again because I don't fucking want them here. But like, oh, the fucking bleeding hearts won't let me move them. So if I have them attack me, then I can move them in a normal car. Hmm. Um, and like at that point, you're like, that's fucking super prickish. And then you're like, oh no, you know, you're going full genocidal wipeout. Yeah. Okay then. And even um, like his ho- the whole thing of like, you see how uptight he gets. There's also only kind of an element of like fucking you know the Nazi term because oh yeah. Like the like the idea that Mensch can be considered a person mm. is like, him just get, massively. Oh, like it really gets under his skin. Really does. Yeah. Like And I think that's um, the difference between like him and like say Fenner and mm-hmm. the other guy who we didn't mention by name, the the other Har- oh, Harg, yeah, who's just Is that Fe- like I get to see the Fenner's like just fucking just leave them alone. Hmm. Do you know, leave them over there and we stay over here we fucking do our jobs and they stay over if they get in my way 
I'll fuck mm. them up. But right now they're not getting in my way. So leave them alone. Whereas Thawne, it's you, you can tell it rankles him so fucking much. Yeah. Do you know? The idea of these lessers mm. do you know, taking up space that he wants. Um very much the colonizer, very much the Nazi ideology. Mm. Um because the interesting thing is that we hear about the sons of earth. And when you hear about something an organization called the Sons of Earth, you're kind of going, are the Sons of Earth like Nazis? Like you're only true if you're from Earth proper mm. and whatever. And we find out that no, they're actually they mean that all living beings are of the earth and therefore all mm. living beings should be respected. I'm like, yeah. Work on your name because you kind yeah. of come across a little bit, you know As yeah, as a you know, us us and us only type thing. Yeah. Um yeah. but that's what Thawn is. Do you know, Thawn is this thing of if you're not from Earth, you're less than shit on my shit. So Thawn you know what the worst part is? Wow. What makes Thawn actually interesting is the way they had him devolve over the story, I thought was mm. done quite well. Yeah. Um the again, would I like to have well. seen Philip do it? Yes, but Neil did it very well. Neil did do it very well. Yeah. I hate saying this. It was a good plan. Mm. Oh yeah. No, it's like it's, it, was it, a, it was a horrific plan. It was a good like, plan. <laughs> but and, and like and that's the thing, like it's a case of you know, you have to you make that distinction where it's like going, We've seen some stupid villain plans. Mm. This one was was genius by comparison. Yeah. Still horrible. Yeah, but um, and that and that's the difference is that he's crazy, he's bigoted, he's selfish prick, but he's not stupid. He's not stupid. No, which makes him all the more dangerous. Yeah, a stupid person, I don't think would have killed again. A stupid person wouldn't have tried to get Fenner on side because they wouldn't think that they could convince him. Yeah. Whereas Thawne is very intelligent and he's like, if I present this in the right way, I can get Fenner on side. Yeah. Because he thinks that Fenner believes the same as him, only to find out that mm. Fenner's like, you killed the little one. Fuck off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to see you hanged. You're a piece of shit. <laughs> get away from me. You killed um, my small dog. Yeah, killed my little dog. Um, <laughs> my brain just went somewhere else. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, so I think I think Fawn is an interesting villain. Yeah, well portrayed, written well enough. Do you know, like the the development into crazy. You know, oh yeah, it, it, it Hitler was done well. It, it it's kind of on par with. Um, do you remember that the miner from Monster Peladon, the guy who's a radical but then mm. becomes an insane radical, very yeah. on par with that development. I think. Yeah. My brain is just not fully engaged today, so like every time we say something, my brain pulls a quote from somewhere else, and I'm yeah. just like, shut up. So we're like, yo, oh, it's like little dog. I'm like, squirrel. 
<laughs> and he's like, oh, it's like the minor. I'm like, they're minors, not minors. Yeah, I, I, the minute I said minor, I'm like, she's going to think of that. She's going to think of that. <laughs> uh, we've already had our Galaxy Quest moment on this podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> uh. But yeah, so I suppose we should probably give it an, an honourable discussion, if you have any thoughts, on Crow. Power of. I, I think the design for him was very interesting. I I actually I I did like the I did like the design. I liked the concept of the animal squid, go- you know, like the animal god. You know, the mm. we've seen much worse. Mm. Um, I no, but I I liked it. I li- I liked the design, and I, I liked the constant threat of Kroll. I thought that was good. I thought it was that was done well. Yeah, like when I because you know I was saying that I watched special features. I didn't watch the special features this one, so I haven't really mentioned it. Um. I've been watching especially just for a lot of the stories, so I knew what the what Scarts mm. mock up looked yeah. like, and so I went into the story kind of being like, "Oh, crawl's gonna look shit." <laughs> mm. I actually thought I thought the effect was actually quite good. Mm. No, like was. I had no issue with the effects of for crawl specifically, yeah, um, whatsoever. And I like the idea that crawl is just a giant fucking squid. Mm-hmm. That's literally all he is. Yeah, just giant squid. That's it. He doesn't have a moral compass or whatever. There's no appeasing mm. him or anything. They don't even fucking try. He's like, yeah, big giant squid. Yep. It's nice and simple to the point. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <sighs> So we have taken a very long meandering route through various mythologies. Yes. To come to and the his, overall historical allegories. <laughs> historical allegories. To come to the overall thoughts on the power of crawl. Hmm. So Paddy, the power of crawl compels you. <laughs> what were your thoughts? <laughs> so this story is a mashup of Fury from the Deep and hmm. the Mutants in terms of some of the themes that are going on. Teams being slightly apartheid-based um, and also big giant monster attacking oil refinery. <laughs> um, the most interesting things in this story are everything happening on the refinery in terms of the dynamic between Thorn, Fenner, and Dugin. Mm. I think that's the most interesting part of the story. Um, outside of that, I think the only thing that I really liked in it was Crawl itself, because concept execution wise and concept wise was done really well, mm. and the Doctor's concern for Romana. Yeah, everything out of that though, um, everything other than that didn't really have a huge impact on me. Uh, Romana not doing a whole lot really bothered me. Um, there were certain plot points that just seemed to make no sense. Like the when the Doctor and the guys are on the rack and they're talking about the Sons of Earth, and there's this big question as to, but surely none of them would have seen themselves, you know, in in years, or like none of them would have seen like the actual Earth for generations, or all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And while yes, you know, Dugin's explanation to it can you know it can be seen can be seen as an answer to that 
the doctor never finds out that answer. So it's, you talk, like we talked before about how, you know, Romana found out the answer to who hmm. the Kaliak was, but didn't actually get to implement it. That's kind of the same here, but it's like the audience gets to know it, but the doctor never does. So the doctor, and we don't get to implement our knowledge into that. Also, um, the whole thing about, it, it made it seem like that each segment of the key to time has a different power. Because like, like was in Stones of Blood, there's the ability for the thing to change the appearance of anything it touches. Mm. Or here we're told that this segment has the ability to, you know, uh, grant prophecy, you know, farsight. And it's like cool. How does that explain a hundred forty foot squid? Yeah, I, the case <laughs> time are weird it. because like the whole thing with the case time is that they can change their shape. Yeah. So when you have something consume something without conscious thought. Yeah. Like the squid's only thought is eat food, stay no, no. alive, eat food, stay alive. It's like cool. Mm-hmm. Eat food, stay alive, get big. Eat food, stay alive, get big. That, that, that's literally the only thing I can think of. Um <laughs> like you enter a being without consciousness in the way that we think about it. So it reverts to animalistic instinct, which is eat food, get big, go for sleep. Yeah. And like I think the other thing as well is that like okay so, I the doctor's explanation was a small bit kind of haphazard for me not being a mm. biologist, um, but okay, touches crawl, zaps it, gets the segment, crawl disappears. Yet we see lots of little mini crawls around the place. And yeah, I didn't get that either. I, I did not I get know, that. Either. I know. I know that. I think. I think that octopuses or squids have certain regenerative abilities to like regrow a tentacle if like mm. one is cut off, but the ability to grow an actual sentient entity from a discarded body part—that, as far as I'm aware—and I hope to God they don't have that ability to reproduce. Also, uh, that's kind of fucked up. We think about the fact that, like, okay, so crow was a big fuck off squid. That slept for centuries. Yeah. If they're doing what you basically said is doing, where you have like the one big thing devolves into many smaller ones. Yeah. The doctor says, oh, just be like a normal giant squid. I'm like, oh, really? So you went from having one big, huge one that sleeps for centuries and end to lots of smaller, <laughs> but still giant squid. Yeah, because I, I think. You fuck these people over royal. <laughs> also. Uh, the thing that we're shown is actually a cuttlefish, which is also fucking even scarier because of what cuttlefish can do. And it's like, ugh. Uh, yeah, I think I think the whole like the whole book of crawl thing that just made no fucking sense. Like, that that whole bit just been yeah, like, I would say, like, yeah, it was just really all over the place. Um, so, but with with, with everything like that in mind. The, some of the performances, some of the story beats, it left a lot to be desired for me anyway. Yeah. So I'm putting this at a two. And that yeah. two is generally coming from the concept of big squid monster eating everything and the relationships and storytelling of the three characters on the refinery. Mm. How about you? Yeah, I found this one quite boring. Um, For context, we did not record last week 
because I was away. So I watched this last night. And I couldn't wait to fucking turn it off. I was so fucking bored. It's not that it was inherently bad. It was just boring. Hmm. You know, I had other things to do that were much more interesting. (laughs) And I wanted to do that instead. Um, Which is surprising for a Bob Holmes story. Now, Bob's Hmm. Bob isn't by any means like a gold star like on everything he does. He's had some fucking clunkers as well. Yeah. But this isn't the type of story I expect from Bob because it comes across as fucking lazy. Mm-hmm. It's a concept we've seen a million fucking times before on Doctor Who where we have the miners or the colonizer or whatever versus the natives. We've fucking seen it a million times before and in certain other stories done better with a bit of the Kraken thrown in because fuck it, why not? Mm-hmm. Do you know? It's like like when I read the trivia because I started doing the trivia last week I started prepping it last week while I was in Dublin um, just mm. to get ahead for myself I didn't really read it I sort of like put it all into the document and I was like cool I'll read it. when I started reading today that like Bob was so hamstrung on this you know it had to have a big giant monster Crawl itself I don't really care about so that's fine I thought that was like I said I think it looked well I didn't mm. mind the idea of it just being a big giant monster it had to have the Keats time bit, okay. But, like, the rest, it just sounds like Bob was just like, what the fuck? Fine, look, here's a piece of shit. Go make a piece of shit. I don't care. Do you know? Which is unfortunate. Um. So, on top of being just boring in general, it takes way too long to reveal to the characters that Kroll has the key segment. That was just fucking dumb. Like, Hello? Where else would it be? We mm. haven't been scanning this entire time. The doctor didn't scan anything, which is funny. That's actually the thing I find funny. That the doctor reveals, oh, I had it the whole time. It's like, then why weren't you looking for the segment? Is it because you knew it was the big giant squid thing? But the big giant squid thing wasn't actually revealed to you for ages. So why the fuck weren't you looking for the segment? You ding he, that. He, I know he doesn't. Re- he doesn't realize that it's, it's. He doesn't realize that it is until. Uh, episode three when we're on the rack yeah yeah um i feel for mary tam in this story because she had sweet bugger fuck all to do Mm. and it's her second last story give her something to fucking work with i don't know if they knew at this point that mary wouldn't be staying on but like this just seems that i don't know whether it was bob being fucking lazy or what but they she had nothing to do I I think this is Bob phoning it in. I, yeah, I, I, and I really do. like the the swampies, whatever. Like, yeah, you know, um, what's his face? Varlick was interesting, hmm. but they were just so generic. Even like the way they were filmed. Like, first of all, the poor guys who are staring loincloths, jogging on the spot, singing, crawl, screaming, crawl every two seconds. Mm. apparently went on for hours if you consider how long it took them on the raft to realise what was happening and then they had to get on the refinery and then they had to get over to where they were and then the doctor had to find her man and they just had that went on for fucking ever um, I was just like it's just, it just badly paced and badly timed and the bits that I liked I loved seeing John Leeson on screen I, mm-hmm. if for no other reason go watch clips of this story so you can watch John on screen I really liked seeing philip as fenner mm-hmm. i thought that i i really enjoyed seeing him on screen again and like i said 
when I when it was all revealed that like he wasn't a total jackass, I was like, ooh, that interesting turn. <laughs> and I think the, the bit on the raft on the refinery was fine. Throwing in a native concept, fucking stupid. Rum Dutch, you might as well just fucking get rid of him. He served no fucking purpose whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I came into this with a two point five. I think I agree with you. I think it's. I think I was being overly generous because of John. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a two. I think Crawl was interesting, but the story itself was lazy. Crawl was just there. I think the native storyline was shit. I think the miners versus natives we've seen it a million times before. Mm. I think the whole thing was just slow and boring, and. The three lads' performances are the only t- way it gets points. So yeah. Half a point because Crawler kind of cool, and half a point for each of the boys, and that's pretty much it. So, so what does that not, do to the average? Yeah, we need to have a look. So, two and two. Okay, it has tanked it a bit, right? So, again, so the start of the season. Rivos mm-hmm. Operation, Pirate Planet, Stones of Blood. We both ranked very high. Mm. Androids of Tara took a bit of a dip. We said it was good. It was just wasn't yeah. fantastic. This has knocked it, right? So before I included this, it was at a 4.31 on average for the season. Right? Mm. That's a good average. Right? Mm. We're saying it's one of the highest... With the twos added for this, it brings it down to 3.85. Oh. So if we're going back to our comparison, which is comparing it with uh, season 13, which had mm-hmm. a similar dip with you know Android Invasion. Season 13 still ended on 4.17 for you and 4.21 for me. It's mm-hmm. Season 12, it has no hope. Season 12 was 4.45 across the board. Season if we seven. Go, season seven, let me find it. Season seven, not not even close. Four point six three. There's no catching up there. And the keys of Marinus, which we mentioned this episode, was a four. So it could still beat out the keys of Marinus, depending on how next week goes. Yes. But I think last week was a bit of a dip, and this was a sort of a. Uh, <laughs> kind of <Yeah>. like <laughs> where'd the floor go um, yeah <laughs> type of I, I, I was actually just thinking it's like when you're at the beach right and you're swimming in yeah. the ocean and you're like yay this is fine and then you start going to like and you're like oh I'm getting a little bit deeper yeah. and then the sandbank disappears I was actually thinking of the swimming pool analogy as well like where it's like yeah this is nice all of a sudden oh <laughs> I'm in the event <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> So, will the season sink or swim? That's going to be an important question. Ooh, yes. That will be answered next week mm-hmm. with the final story of this season, which is called, just has forgotten the name. The Armageddon Factor. Thank you. Which I continually think is the name of a game show, but that's the Krypton Factor. <laughs> <laughs> and next week is six episodes. Yes. Note to self, make room on Wednesday to watch six episodes. (laughs) And like I would have I would have been rejoicing. I would have been rejoicing because this is that would have been the last six parter story Mm. ever. But 
because Shadow has been re- uh, <laughs> has been reconstructed, uh, we will do Shadow, which is six episodes. Yeah. So after Shadow, I will rejoice. <laughs> yes. So tune in next time for the end mm. of the case of time. Mm-hmm. Bye. Bye. <laughs>